Hello, James Kenny here, and this is my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number seven, entitled Mount Joy and Carew Arrive for the Battle of Kinsale in 1601. To replace Bagenal, Norris and Essex, who were all regarded as being fair foes, even though Essex was considered pompous, the Crown now sent Mountjoy and Carew. Their aim was to crush the Irish in a cold-blooded, callous and cruel way. They introduced every trick of treachery, deceit, flattery, promises and inducement of gold. Their scheming caused the breakup of chiefs with many defections. Worse was to follow when the national leaders were accused of treason. And this was the sort of false accusation on which Mountjoy hoped to split the national confederation. In this way, the English had, in any one province, an army superior to the entire Irish force. Charles Blount, 8th Baron Mountjoy served as Lord Deputy of Ireland under Queen Elizabeth I, then as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland under King James I. He commanded the Crown's forces during the final years of Hugh O'Neill's rebellion. He was able to defeat O'Neill at the Battle of Kinsale and captured his headquarters at Dungannon before peace was agreed at the Treaty of Mellifont in 1603. On his return to England, Lord Mountjoy served as one of Sir Walter Raleigh's judges in 1603. And in the same year, King James I appointed him Master of the Ordinance, as well as creating him Earl of Devonshire, granting him extensive estates. To this day, his name lives on in Dublin, with Mountjoy Square and Mountjoy Jail. Sir George Carew served under Elizabeth I during the conquest of Ireland and was appointed President of Munster. After the subjugation of Ireland, Carew sought recall to England, with failing health and anxieties of office affecting him. But it was only on Mountjoy's resignation from the office of Lord Lieutenant that he was permitted to return, whereupon he was replaced as President of Munster. Under King James I, he enjoyed immediate and lasting favour. The eventful campaign of 1601 was fought in almost every part of Ireland. By September, comparatively little had been gained by the English except in Munster. But the Irish were now considerably exhausted and desperately needed rest and recruitment. When the news was conveyed to them, that an auxiliary force from Spain had landed at Kinsale. This Spanish force, instead of helping the Irish, was in fact to be their ruin. O'Neill, in his letters to Spain, made it quite clear the Spanish fleet should land in Ulster. But if they decided on Munster, then nothing less than 10,000 men would be required, because the salt was strongly garrisoned by the English, while the reverse 
was the case in the north. The Spanish were reluctant to attempt to navigate the waters on the west coast of Ireland, considering the Armada disaster of 1588. After being spanked by the English, they returned to Spain. The Armada was disrupted further by storms. Many ships were wrecked on the coasts of Scotland and Ireland, and more than a third of the initial 130 ships failed to return. After Philip II's death, Philip III continued to provide direct support. Material support had been sent for many years to the Irish rebels fighting England. In 1601, Philip sent Don Juan de la Guia and Don Diego Brochero to Ireland with 6,000 men and a significant amount of arms and ammunition. Bad weather separated the ships, and nine of them, carrying most veteran soldiers and gunpowder, had to turn back. The remaining 4,000 men disembarked at Kinsale, just south of Cork, on the 2nd of October, 1601. Another force, commanded by Alonso de Ocampo, managed to land at Baltimore. The Spaniards rushed to fortify these footholds to withstand the approaching English armies. While the Spanish army had secured the town of Kinsale, they failed to expand their base into the surrounding region and were vulnerable to attack by English forces. On hearing of the Spanish landing, Mountjoy, the assigned Lord Deputy of Ireland, weakened the garrison around the Pale of Dublin and rushed to Kinsale with as many men as he could muster. The English also had a powerful fleet sent to blockade the port of Kinsale under the command of Admiral Richard Levison. In the early days of December 1601, he fought a battle off Castlehaven and forced his way into the harbour of Kinsale, where he destroyed the whole of the enemy's shipping under Pedro de Zubiar. While on land, a strong force of 15,000 English troops took up favourable positions outside the town. Delaguia contacted O'Neill in the north, demanding that he send troops to his assistance in great haste. But for O'Neill and O'Donnell to undertake a winter trek of 300 miles across Ireland with their weakened and exhausted troops would be foolhardy. Meanwhile, George Carew was insidiously trying to induce the Spanish commander to turn around and sail homewards, on liberal terms. When this attempt at deception was conveyed to the two chiefs, Hugh O'Neill and Red Hugh O'Donnell set out with their troops. On the way, O'Donnell was joined by Philemo Doherty and Maxwina Natuha, O'Boyle, O'Rourke, the brothers O'Connor from Sligo, O'Connor Rowe, MacDermott, O'Kelly and others of the northern clans, mustering in all about 2,500 men. O'Neill was joined with reinforcements of MacDonnell of Antrim, McGuinness of Down, MacMahon of Monaghan and others making around 4,000 men. The two chiefs had planned to meet at Holy Cross Abbey but O'Donnell and his force were almost intercepted and had to make a detour at night to avoid the awaiting Carew and his army. 
O'Donnell managed to outwit them, but failed to meet up with O'Neill, who had marched on and reached Ballygooley within sight of Kinsale, where on the 21st of December he joined up with the fateful Donal O'Sullivan, Lord of Bear, and O'Driscoll and O'Connor, Kerry, who declared openly for the national cause in this moment of crisis. Some of the delayed Spanish ships reached Castlehaven in November, just as O'Donnell's force, who had previously made a detour, reached the same place. The Spanish contingent now joined up with O'Donnell and they camped before Kinsale. Already he had detailed some of the Spanish as garrisons to the forts of Dunboy, Baltimore and Castlehaven. On the eve of Christmas, the Irish left their camps in three divisions. The vanguard led by Tyrrell, the centre headed by O'Neill, with whom were O'Sullivan Bear and Alonso de Ocampo. They expected to surprise the English in the dark of night, but spies and informers were well paid, and the enemy were already awaiting and prepared for them. O'Neill held sway for about one hour. Forty Spanish, with Ocampa, their leader, were held and taken prisoner. O'Donnell, with great courage, drove the English cavalry before him, and Tyrrell's horsemen held their ground against superior forces. Battle tactics showed that the Irish infantry were poorly trained for pitched battle in formation against a well-drilled professional army. It also showed the strength of the English cavalry techniques, using the lance as compared with the Irish method of no stirrup and overhead spear-throwing. All prisoners taken by the English were instantly executed, and the Irish dead amounted to 1,200, while on the English side the dead amounted to about 600. Among their dead were Sir Richard Graham, Captains Godolphin and Danvers, and many other officers were wounded. It is said that during the battle 6,000 English troops either deserted or died, or were sick with disease. Owing to Spanish involvement and the strategic advantages to be gained, the battle also formed part of the Anglo-Spanish War, the wider conflict of Protestant England against Catholic Spain. Outnumbered, deprived of reinforcements and provisions, and under constant English bombardment, the Spaniards held the town of Kinsale for more than three months. The English made no attempt to storm it. On January the 12th, Juan de la Guia surrendered. The terms of the surrender forced the Spanish to surrender their places and castles in Kinsale, Castlehaven, Dunboy, Dunaseed and Dunalong on Shirkin Island. In return, the Spanish army, then reduced to 1,800 men, and all the Irish who so wished, would receive supplies and transport to return to Spain. Also, they would keep their weapons, flags and money. On January the 14th, just two days later, Martin de Valachina arrived in Kinsale with reinforcements, but returned to Spain as soon as he learned of the surrender. This was the battle which some historians tell that the Irish were defeated because they had to fight in the open instead of on bogland and marshes and in woodland like at Yellow Ford. 
in a contemptuous reference to their victory there. This loss put an end to Spanish help in Ireland and to much of the Irish resistance. The Ulster forces returned to their home province and after two more years of attrition, the last of them surrendered in 1603, just after the death of Queen Elizabeth I. In the following year, England and Spain agreed to make peace with the signing of the Treaty of London. Scientific studies of tree trunks and Greenland ice layers can now verify that a catastrophic volcanic eruption in Hainaputina in Peru, halfway around the world, in 1600, created near-Arctic conditions in Ireland in October, November and December of 1601 and reduced the sun's luminosity in a cloudless sky. The dust particles and sulphur dioxide blocked the sun and moon and made it appear apocalyptic to the Irish, Spanish and English Christians fighting each other at Christmas time. If O'Neill and O'Donnell had waited until spring of 1602 to travel the 300-mile gruelling march to Kinsale with a battle-worn army, the English troops encamped around Kinsale, who found the ground too hard to dig into, would have probably died from illness created by the cold and lack of provisions. As mentioned earlier, 6,000 English troops either deserted or died or were sick with disease, and therefore the outcome might have produced a different result for Ireland. Instead, the English made the most of it and followed up with the plantation of Ulster. As explorers and armies conquered new lands, rulers gave merchants the right to trade with the territories. Sea voyages were risky, so a single person would not want to finance them alone. Rulers allowed the merchants to set up special companies in which a group of investors each contributed money and each received a share of the profit. The companies led the push into foreign lands, earning wealth and fame for themselves and their rulers. The English East India Company, founded in 1600, was such a business venture. Sir James Lancaster commanded the first East India Company voyage in 1601 aboard the Red Dragon. After capturing a rich 1,200-ton Portuguese carrack in the Malacca Straits, the trade from the booty enabled the voyagers to set up two factories, one at Bantam on Java and another in the Moluccas or Spice Islands before leaving. They returned to England in 1603 to learn of Elizabeth's death, but Lancaster was knighted by the new king, James I. By this time, the war with Spain had ended, but the company had successfully and profitably breached the Spanish and Portuguese duopoly, with new horizons opening for the English. After the Battle of Kinsale, 
the Irish leaders held council at Inishannon on the River Bandon, where it was agreed that O'Neill should return to his own province of Ulster. Rory, the second brother of O'Donnell, should act as chieftain of Tyrconnell, and that Red Hugh O'Donnell should himself travel to Spain to lay the true story of the battle before Philip III. It was also decided that O'Sullivan Bear should endeavour to hold his castle at Dunboyne. The loss in men was not exactly irreparable, but the loss of arms and reputation was a very painful burden to bear. Red Hugh O'Donnell went to Castlehaven and took a ship to Spain. He was well received there, but died a few months later, said to be by poisoning by George Carew's spy called Blake. The English were not honourable in victory. A detachment detailed by Sir George Carew were now doing their savage and merciless worst. His violence devastated the rebels and the peasantry, and his conduct at the siege of Dunboyne Castle, the last major engagement in Munster during the Nine Years' War, was ruthless. In the words of Carew, he said, The occupation of his troops was in seeking out and murdering in cold blood men, women and children from their homes and then stealing their cows and setting fire to their crops. Early, in August 1602, Mountjoy brought his forces to the north for what he thought would be the final battle to try and finish off O'Neill. To accomplish this, he brought Arthur Chichester from Carrigan-Fergus, Dower from Derry, and Henry Davers from Armagh. All were gathered together under his command, numbering 8,000, for a foray into Tyrone, to capture the lands of O'Neill, for himself if possible. The most brutal and destructive warfare ensued. The growing crops were destroyed, in a frenzy of madness, with fire and a type of harrow, and any that were missed out, the troops slashed with their bayonets, and the cavalry trampled them into muck and waste. Mountjoy now reported to his queen that there were three thousand dead in Tyrone, and one thousand of the dead lay unburied, while Monaghan, Clandeboy, and Tyrone were given up to horrors surpassing any known or imagined in former wars. By this time, while O'Sullivan Bear bravely held his position in the scenic Glengarrow for six months against all, with the aid of Tyrrell's contingent, they had in all about 800 men, and they waited on news from King Philip of Spain. But the news received was bad, in fact the very worst that any small contingent could expect to hear. The Spanish had countermanded the expedition when on the very point of sailing for Ireland. O'Sullivan Bear decided that there was no point in waiting to be trapped and butchered, so the brave band decided to set out for the north. On their march they gave Carew's soldiers a very worrying time and captured many good positions, but the going was tough with a crowd of helpless old people, as well as women and children, and with barely a few hundred fighting men, led by O'Sullivan Bear. This astonishing feat has gone down in history as a retreat unparalleled anywhere. 
On January the 1st, 1603, they reached Ballyvorney, but were constantly harassed before reaching Duhallow. They stoutly defended themselves and gave battle to the garrisons between Charleville and Buttevant. They managed to escape and push ahead, carrying their wounded, as each day grew more painful with hunger and illness. To give in would have meant torture and death anyway, so it was decided to travel on and on, until they passed through the Glen of Aherlow, Dunohill, Ballinakill, Schlievefilm and Latera, each day encountering new enemies and spies. On the 6th of January, they came to Lura, where they prepared to cross the River Shannon. They required a boat to cross over, so O'Sullivan Bear decided that there was nothing for it but to sacrifice eleven of their pack horses. So like his Neolithic forebears, they killed and skinned eleven horses. The flesh they cooked and cut up for provisions for the remainder of the journey. The boat they made was an ancient type of coracle. The method of construction passed down through generations of fishermen on Bear Island. They would have to make several journeys across to the opposite bank, so the women and children were forced to go, and they succeeded eventually in reaching Connacht. But the spies were out and informed on them. When the English soldiers arrived, they killed some of the women and children before the remainder managed to make their escape through the forests. At last relief was at hand when O'Rourke's castle was sighted. They gave cheer and aroused the occupants, who tended their wounds and prepared hot meals, and gave what assistance they could to comfort the weary band of survivors. The O'Rourke's had been relegated to large landowners within County Leitrim, with no official authority over the other clans, and a vastly reduced tax base, land area and population. Elizabeth, during the latter days of her reign, had waged a terrible war against O'Neill in Ulster, and was known to have said, The more slaughter there is, the better it will be for my English subjects, the more land they will get. This queen, when the Gerlines were destroyed, took the whole of the vast estates of the Earl of Desmond, and gave them all quietly and calmly to Englishmen from Lancashire, Devon, Somerset and Cheshire and this is recorded and stamped on the world's history. After their defeat at the Battle of Kinsale in 1601, and the end of the Nine Years' War in Ulster in 1603, Hugh O'Neill and Red Hugh O'Donnell had been forced into exile by the victorious English, under the leadership of Lord Mountjoy. They retained their lands and titles, although with much diminished extent and authority. However, the countryside was laid bare in a campaign of destruction in 1602 and induced famine in 1603, following the scorched earth policy of the English. O'Neill was later pardoned under the terms of the Treaty of Mellifont in March 1603.